0: Now, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please turn to John chapter 3. We are beginning our new Advent series, and I know that we're a week late for starting Advent, but hey, we're evangelicals, so we get to do what we want. (laughs) But for me, growing up, uh, my first memory of Advent is a painful one. Like so many of the stories that I share with you guys, every memory that I have, my first memory of something is always painful or humiliating. Well, this one is no different. And for the four weeks of Advent at the church I grew up at, they would have the little wreath up here, which is really cool, and I wish we could have one, but the fire system here is very sensitive, and I don't want you guys to get doused with water. Um, it, just wouldn't, it would be a good story someday, but it would not be good right now. So we would have the the four weeks and every week a different family would go up there and you would read a verse and then you would light one of the Advent candles going all the way through for the four weeks till they are lit and then on the Christmas Eve service we would light the final candle. Well, my family was always one of the families that was chosen to do this. So what happened is we'd have to get more dressed up than usual, which meant that I'd have to wear some brown corduroy pants, so we'd walk like, and you'd feel like there was about to be a fire that was going to combust in your thighs from the friction of those things. And I'd have to wear a dress shirt with a clip-on tie, and I know clip-on tie sounds kind of cheesy, but I was young, I was probably only about 20 years old, so I was doing pretty well, and then I'd have a little sweater on over that, and we would go up there, we'd you know, smile, and everybody liked seeing my sister and I, little ginger kids up there, looking all cute, and... My dad would read the scripture, and then my oldest sister, Jenny, she would be the one that was entrusted with the responsibility of lighting the Advent candle. So my dad would read, she would pick up the unlit candle, she would go to the altar, light the candle, and then bring it over to the Advent candle, and she lit it, and then she goes, and she blew out the candle in her hand as well as the Advent candle that she had just lit. I was like, huh, you know. I guess you live and learn. So she goes back once again to the altar, lights the candle, walks back to the Advent candle, lights that one, blows both of them out. And now I'm young, but I'm sitting there going, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. I'm feeling embarrassed. A couple of people chuckle a little bit. It's kind of nice. It's cute. Oh, look at the little girl. She's blowing out the candles. And so she goes back a third time to light it, and I'm just like, dear Lord, if I have ever found favor in your eyes, Please don't let her do this again. She goes back up, lights the Advent candle a third time, Blows them both out. And at this time, it's an uproar of laughter and looks of disgust. And I'm just wanting to disappear, change my name, find a new church, start over, find a new family. Because I know I shouldn't feel that way, but that's what insecurity does to you. You look at your sister and you're like, because she's doing this now, everybody thinks this is me. This is a bad reflection of me. So I'm turning redder than my hair was back then, just wanting to slink away My sister figures out what's going on after the third time, goes back, lights the candle from the altar, lights the Advent candle, turns her head, blows it out, and there's an uproar of applause and cheers. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh. And so I'm slinking back down. I I marched up there so proud. We went up there to light the candles, and I went back like Charlie Brown dragging the towel. And once again, like the friction. And then every December that came around, every Advent season that approached I was filled with dread and fear because I knew what was coming. Once again, my family was going to be paraded up there. My sister was going to be entrusted with lighting the candle. And even if she did it right this time, everybody was going to remember. So every December, I knew I I had this fear and intimidation, this idea of humiliation that was going to occur because of a past event that had occurred. And that is what Advent is all about. I mean, really, when you think about this, this is what Advent is. Advent is about a future expectation based on a past event. See, Advent actually means the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. So every Christmas, every Advent season, we remember that Jesus came to us. And we celebrate that. We always get out the Bibles and we read the old uh, Isaiah prophecies about the Messiah that would come, and we see how Jesus fulfilled all of those things. We remember all this. We marvel at the wisdom of God's plan to bring salvation to us. It was a way that nobody could ever have expected. We celebrate the love, joy, peace, and hope that Jesus has brought to us. But Advent isn't just a historical event that we celebrate because Jesus is coming again. And the expectation that we have for his return, for his second coming, is based on the experience that we've already had with him in the past. Advent isn't just historic, it's prophetic. We celebrate that our Savior has come to us. But we also look forward with a longing inside of our hearts to the day when he returns to us. And we are forever united with him. And so we're going to start out our Advent series. We're going to be talking about love today. The love that Jesus brought us and the love that we look forward to upon his second Advent. And there's no better verse in all of the Bible for us to look at today than John 3, 16 and 17. If you've ever seen any football game, you've seen some crazy guy out there. Um, Don't be that guy. If you've ever been tempted to, don't do it. But it's a really good verse, and it says this For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, what this is saying is that the reason why Jesus came to earth was because he loves you. It's that simple. You know why I married Anna? I love her. One of the cruel jokes that I like to play on people are coming to me for pre-marriage counseling is I always say, so what is it that you love about this person? And no one's ever given me a good answer yet. You know, I, I, I can think of lots of reasons why you shouldn't marry this person. I can think of lots of bad things about them. But when it boils right down to it, why is it that you love someone? You just do. It's not complex. And that's the same way with God. Why why did he come to the world? It's because he loves us. It's not a a complex theological or doctrinal understanding. God loved you so much that he came to the world so that he could save you. Not to condemn you, not to judge you, but he came because he has a deep love for you that compelled him to come and to save you. You see, love always demands an action. Love always must be expressed. If I were to say that I love you, but I walk by and you're sitting in a pit of quicksand and you're sinking and I'm, I'm you know, carrying like a big branch by me and I see you and you're saying, help, help me, Jeremy. And I'm like, hey, sorry, I, I love you though. <laughs> you're like, what good does that do? Your words don't mean anything. If you just say that you love someone but you never do anything to demonstrate that love to them, you don't really love them. And so that's why God came and he had to demonstrate his love for us in different ways. When he looked at us and he saw what sin had done to us and how it separated us from him, how it brought sin and uh, death and destruction and so much chaos into the world, when he looked at us and he saw us and knew the destiny that our lives were leading to, because of his love for us, he was compelled to express that love through physical actions. And there were a lot of things that God did to express the love that he has for us. We're just going to look at a few of them today. But the first one is that God expressed his love through humility. Philippians 2, 6-8 says this, Christ Jesus, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. And by far the most degrading and humbling thing that I do in my life right now is I change diapers. I have a one-year-old little girl, and she needs her diaper changed. And she never just lays and holds still for you so you can do it. She kicks, she squirms, she moves around. I get it, it gets all over the floor, it gets on this wall sometimes, it gets on me. It's really gross and disgusting. She never thanks me for what I have done for her. She just fills up the diaper again. It's like, why am I even doing this? Sometimes she doesn't even wait till I get the new diaper back on her. I'm like, why are you doing this to me? But I do it for her because I love her. I humble myself, I do things I don't want to do because I love my daughter. Now, why don't I change other people's kids' diapers? I don't love them enough. (laughs) I mean, that sounds terrible, but let's be honest. There are things that you won't humble yourself for because you don't have the motivation of love in you to make make you humble yourself for them. But since it's my kids, I love them. I'll do anything for them. I'll change their diapers. That's nothing. In the grand scheme of things, I will change my kids' diapers forever if that's what it takes, because those are my kids. But you know what's even more humiliating than changing your kids' diaper? When my grandpa was really old, he came and he lived with us. And I had to change his diapers. And I remember the first time my mom asked me to do that, and I was like, what? How? What? I mean, yeah, I'll do it, of course, but, oh, man, I had to get myself psyched up to do this. That's not something, again, I don't just go around looking for people that need diapers to be changed and do it, but because of the love that I had for him, I was willing to humble myself and put aside the awkwardness that that would create. But you know what's even more humiliating and humbling than changing someone's diaper? is when you're that adult and you have to have your grandson change your diaper. I'll never forget the tears that were going down his eyes because he found himself in a place where the little baby that he used to hold and who he used to change was now put in a position of, because of the weakness in his body, because of his loss of dependence, that he was having to rely on his grandson to come and to change him and to clean him. That's humbling. And somewhere in all these dirty diapers, God taught me something about himself. See, Jesus loves us so much that he was willing to humble himself more than we can ever comprehend. And the reason we can't comprehend God's humility is because we'll never be in a position of where we can give up as much as God gave up. Can I remember, Jesus is fully God. Spoke the universe into being. Worshipped and adored by all of the angelic beings for all of eternity. The one who is all-powerful, filled with glory, all-knowing, omnipresent, omnipotent. He is God, the Alpha, the Omega. And it says that he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped onto. But he was willing to empty himself of his glory. He was willing to empty himself of his power and to humble himself, and to come as one of us. And he didn't come as the best of us. He didn't live in a palace. He wasn't rich. He wasn't famous. He came and he lived as a poor peasant amongst a despised and marginalized people and an occupied nation. And even amongst his own people, he was the tribe and from the area that you didn't want to be from. He was born in a manger. Didn't even have a bed. Born amongst the animals. Put in a feeding trough as his crib. He humbled himself. And this is what really hit me as I was changing those diapers. God, the one who spoke the world into being, God, the one who created Mary as one of his children, put himself in the position of where he needed his diapers changed by her. And that might not hit you guys the way that it hit me. But that's something. Because I never want to be in that position. But God emptied himself so completely, humbled himself so much, that he had his diapers changed. To express the love that he had for us, to come and to fully identify with us in everything that we go through, He left it all. And God also did this. He expressed his love through his death. Now, who would you die for? Is that a question you've ever gone through in your head? Who are the people that you would die for? It's not something, hopefully you're not making a list of this, because if I see your list and my name's not on it and yours is on mine, it's going to be awkward. I noticed I wasn't on your list. What's going on here? You're on mine. I thought we had a different kind of relationship than this. You know who I'd lay my life down for without even thinking about it? It's my wife and my kids. Wouldn't think about it. I would do everything inside of my power to protect them. I would pay any price. I would go through any torment to ensure the safety of my wife and my children. Why? Because I love them. My love would compel me. I would have to express that love that I have for them. But here's a better question. Who wouldn't you die for? Would you lay your life down for the people in California that this last week went and shot up their workplace and killed 14 others? Would you be willing to lay your life down to save someone who's going to go on to commit an atrocity like a mass shooting? And why wouldn't you do that? It's because you don't love them. It's because you don't view them as being worthy of the sacrifice of your life. But here's the thing. Jesus laid his life down for them. Knowing what it was that they were going to do, knowing the wickedness that was inside of their heart, Jesus came, humbled himself, and laid his life down for them to express that he loves for them. Why? Because he loves them. Now let me tell you this. Jesus loves you. If Jesus loves them, then it's pretty easy to believe that Jesus loves you, isn't it? Because when he looks at you and he sees all of the hurt, all of the brokenness, he still looks at you and he still chose to love you and lay his life down for you. It says this in Romans 5, 6-8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right where you are, with everything you've done, he knew every dark sin that we would ever commit. He knew every horrible thing that we would ever do, but he loved us enough to lay his life down for us in spite of all of those things. He expressed his love for us through his death, even when we weren't worth dying for even when we weren't worthy of the sacrifice that he made, even when our hearts were filled with evil and we would go on to do terrible, horrible things, he laid his life down for us. And then here's the last question to kind of help frame God's love for us. You'd be willing to lay your your life down for some people, but would you lay down your child's life? There's nobody in this world that I would sacrifice my child for. But God sacrificed his son for us. That's an incredible love. And that's how I know that God loves me. He humbled himself. He went to death. And not just that, but he sacrificed his own son for me. that's something that I couldn't comprehend, I couldn't do for anybody, but he did it for me. There is no love like this, the love that we see in Jesus. But here's another way that God's expressing his love, is that God will express his love through his return. See, we see the history of what it is that Jesus has done. We see the demonstration and the model of the love that he has for us, but it gets even better for us Because Jesus is coming back. And this is what he says. As he's getting ready to ascend into heaven and to be away from his disciples, they're all freaking out because they don't want to be without Jesus. But he says this to them in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is saying that I'm coming back for you. The love that you've encountered from me, that's just the beginning. That's not even the fullness of it. But I'm coming back to you. Because when you love someone, what do you want to be? You want to be with them. I remember when I met Anna and we fell in love and I conned her into saying yes to me when I proposed to her. And let me tell you, after that moment... There was the demonstration of our love. There was the demonstration of the commitment and that we had, you know, said we are going to spend the rest of our lives together. We are going to be husband and wife. But that didn't mean we were together yet. That wasn't the fullness of the love. That wasn't the fullness of the relationship. That didn't come until the day of our wedding. When we came, we were united and we would never be apart again. And I remember this. When I was just the longing that I had for being on the phone Okay, good night. Good night. You hang up first. No, you hang up first. Hey. Okay, we'll hang up at the same time. Count of three. One, two, three. He didn't hang up. Ha-ha. You know, like you do that when you're in love because you're just longing for this person. I remember before I got married thinking that all night we're just going to hold each other in our arms and we're just going to be together, and that was all that I wanted. And I remember after about two minutes of that, I was like, okay, my arm's asleep. Can we go to our own sides of the bed now? <sighs> But you have this longing and this desire for that person and you can't wait until the day that you are fully united with them. And that's the way that it is for us. That's what Advent is all about is that we saw the demonstration of God's love. We saw how great his love is for us through his humility, through the sacrifice of his own death, through laying down his only son. But that was just the beginning of it. And Jesus is coming back one day and the imagery that's always used when Jesus talks about his return is like a groom who is coming for his bride. To be together forever, to be fully united. And I remember as I was standing in the chapel and I was looking down the aisle and I saw my bride approach. And I saw her beauty, I saw her grace, I saw how perfect she was. And when she looked up and her eyes met, I don't tell many people this, but I got a little tear. Because I knew that she was mine and I was hers. And we were going to be together forever. This day that I had been longing for for so long was finally here. I was just filled with joy. Like, I, if, the only way you know is if you've experienced it yourself. The joy of that moment And that's the same kind of joy and the longing and the expectation that God has for you. You see, it says this in Isaiah chapter 62. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. You know what was so great about finally being married? Was that it shaped my identity. Because I knew that I had this perfect love from someone. I knew we were going to be together forever. I knew no matter what it was that I had done or who I was, she was always going to love me. She was always going to have mercy and forgiveness and grace towards me. And that filled me with joy. And God has that same view towards you. He knows who you are. He knows what you have done. But he still longs for you. Like a bride... Or a bridegroom await each other, and he rejoices over you. And this is what we wait for in Advent. Our groom is coming for us. And that should stir up a new longing inside of our hearts. Every time I look around at the world and just the senseless tragedies that we continue to see day after day, it always makes me say, Jesus, come soon. Just living with the moments of where you sin or, or you feel like you let God down somehow and you're like, God, I'm so sick of living with this fleshly desires and everything. God, come soon. When you have those moments where you just want that intimacy and that closeness with God, for every fear and every doubt to be gone. And you say, my Savior, my groom, come soon. We long for the return of Jesus because of the experience and the encounter that we've had with him. We've tasted and we've seen his goodness. We've experienced the love. We've seen the demonstration and the expression of God's love for us. He made it real, but it's not the fullness of it yet. We'll be united to him forever in perfect love when our Savior comes again. Would you all stand with me this morning? I'm just going to take a moment and ask God to speak to us what it is that he wants us to do with this. So, Father, we ask that you would come this morning, Father, that you would know every heart, that you would speak to every ear. Holy Spirit, what is it that you would have us do this morning? There are two ways that we need to respond. And the first is that you need to recognize that Jesus has just been pursuing you. Again and again, he keeps demonstrating that love for you. Have you responded to his love? Have you said yes to him? And if you haven't, then this morning, every eye is closed and every head is bowed. But if Jesus is speaking to you and he's calling to you, he's telling you how much he loves you, and this morning you want to respond to that love. You want to say, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. Forgive my sins. Make me yours. This morning, just raise your hand with me this morning so I can pray for you. It's a sign of God I want that in my life. Thank you. Then I think the other group of people this morning is sometimes in the waiting the heart begins to grow cold. This morning, if you need more of a longing for the return of Jesus in your heart, if you want to be more desperate in seeking after him and pursuing him, then we you be bold enough to raise your hand this morning as a way of saying, God, I want new passion in my heart for you. Remind me, stir something up inside of me as I long and I await your return. Thank you. Let's just all pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your love. Father, we thank you that you had a plan to bring about our salvation, that you had a plan to make us sons and daughters, that you were coming for us to unite us perfectly to you for all of time. And this morning, we surrender ourselves to you. Now we respond to your love. You are our Lord. You are our Savior. Every part of our heart, we turn over to you. And Jesus, we pray that by your power, you would stir up something inside of us. That every moment of every day, you would continue to be on our minds. We would continue to look to you with faith and expectation based out of the goodness we've experienced from you in the past. God, that we would be those who long for you to return. And Jesus, that out of the love that we have for you, we would live a life that's pleasing for you. God, let us be those who hear your voice. Let us be those who live differently because of the love that we've found in you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.